The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 to chapter 4, verse 1. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. (laughs) Thanks again, Wes. Uh, Good morning, everybody. We're continuing uh, the series that we've been in, uh, studying Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, or Colossians. And uh, today we're talking about the songs of God in Music City. So uh, oftentimes in response to a piece of music or congregational singing or a choral piece, one of our pastors, Todd Teller, will come up and spontaneously say, Nashville isn't normal. Uh, Nashville isn't normal because... This is a city that revolves around a stage, uh, especially a stage that involves uh, musicians. Uh, And it's also a city that revolves around a party. So stages with music and parties everywhere. And churches like ours actually benefit from these kinds of dynamics uh, in the city that we are part of. Um, music, for example, every week we are led in worship, uh, as we were today, by people who do this sort of thing professionally uh, throughout the week, whether we're talking about uh, session musicians or, uh, you know, those who are recording artists and songwriters or touring artists. We have this embarrassment of riches uh, in the city of Nashville that churches like ours Uh, often benefit from. Uh, And in terms of being a city that revolves around a party, uh, revolves around communities of people getting together and enjoying one another's company and and so on, 
Um, there's no lack in Nashville either, right? So we're the city of the Pedal Tavern, right? Whenever we have friends visit us from out of town, we'll, we'll go downtown uh, and, and there'll be these Pedal Taverns, which we've grown used to seeing. And, and you can always tell a tourist from a local because the tourists will, will, will say, oh, that's so neat. That's so fascinating. And the, the locals will just roll their eyes. Oh, another Pedal Tavern slowing down traffic um, you know, and, 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 and all the rest. And, and then, of course, amidst the Pedal Tavern, there's also all of these different uh, bachelorette parties that, that, uh, that line the streets of, of Nashville, Tennessee. And all of it, all of this festivity, all of this, this party life uh, in the town that we uh, are from uh, is a bit of an echo of Luke chapter 15, uh, if I could draw this connection, uh, a lost son comes home, and the father who's been waiting for him to do so uh, is so moved by his son's arrival that he, he can't just say, hey, let's, let's all, let's the, just the family get around the table and celebrate his homecoming. He has to invite the whole community and, and pour you know, resources and, and, and heart and soul and gusto into into you know, this huge feast that he invites the whole community to. And it's a picture, isn't it, of, of worship. The challenge to churches is that things like quality music and fun parties, uh, we have to remember that these are not an end in themselves when it comes to church life, right? So if you go to, you know, Bridgestone to see your favorite band or to the Ryman to see your favorite band, right, the band and their music is an end in itself. It's what, you, it's what you've been you know, waiting for. It's what you've organized your schedule around, bought the tickets months ago, etc. Um, you know, the music is the point, but, but in church, all of these things, uh, the music, the preaching, the liturgy, the community, they all serve as pointers, uh, like road signs directing you to a destination, and the destination is Jesus Christ. Uh, who the Bible refers to as the potter, and we are the clay, and he forms us. And that's the fundamental reason why we're here. That's the fundamental reason why church exists, is to form the people of God into the likeness of God. And so, so I'm going to talk about a couple of things today to, to help us understand those realities a, a, a bit more deeply. First of all, we're here to be formed, but into what? And secondly, what is our part? Uh, how do we participate in what God is doing in order to form us into the likeness of Jesus Christ? And so, so formed into what? Uh, the, the answer to that question is in verse 16, formed into people, this is why we're here, according to God, this is why the church exists, to, to fundamentally and primarily form us into people in whom the Word of Christ dwells richly. That's verse 16. Uh, or as Pastor David Filson often says, uh, so that we can get into the Bible, that the Bible would then get into us and then shape us and form us. There's a kind of riches, a kind of power, a kind of wisdom that, that, that's promised here when the Word of Christ gets into us and dwells within us. And so, so if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, which is another letter that was written by the same author, uh, the Apostle Paul, 
there's this spontaneous, it seems, prayer that he, he bursts out into. And this prayer actually represents what every good pastor, uh, um, you know, has on the heart for the people of God. And it's that they be formed. He prays this. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So there's all kinds of riches, all kinds of wealth, all kinds of resources that Paul is gushing out to God in prayer, and he's saying, I, I want your people to experience what I get to experience. I want them to know what I get to know. I want them to feel what I get to feel. And, and, and what are those things? You know, three words keep popping up. Wisdom, riches, and power. God wants his kids to experience riches, wisdom, and power. But the kind of riches, wisdom, and power that, that that are defined by Scripture, right? There's a, there's a wealth that, that, that goes far beyond monetary wealth. It's, it's an inner wealth of, of the soul. It's the riches of the soul. There's a, there's a wisdom that goes far beyond the wisdom of philosophers and, 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 and intellects and, and, and PhDs as much as philosophers and intellects and PhDs serve the human community. There's a wisdom that goes far beyond that even. And there's a power that, 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 that is the same power that brought the galaxies into existence that that if the Word of Christ dwells in you, that same power dwells in you to turn you into a certain kind of human being, to form you into a certain kind of version of yourself that, that's the best and most life-giving and glorious version of yourself. And it all has its source here in His Word, right? This, the same God who, who put the galaxies into existence with words that God gives us words to put into ourselves so that that same power that created the galaxies uh, is now within us to, to, to create things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control or the fruit of the Spirit. So the first acknowledgement here from this scripture is that words have power. Words have power. Here's some examples. You're hired. Those are powerful words. You're hired. We want you to join the team. You're fired. We want you to leave the team. Those words have power too. I love you. Powerful words. I hate you. Powerful words. Come on in. Powerful words. Get out of here. Power. You matter. Powerful words. You are worthless. Powerful words. You're beautiful. Powerful. You're ugly. Powerful. Words, this whole, you know, sticks and stones thing is crazy. Words put existence into existence. Words have power to crush us. You know, many people are you know, seeing counselors and have been for years or even decades, maybe because of a single sentence that was spoken over, to, over you 
by somebody who has power in your life or a name that they called you that was derogatory and demeaning or you know, some other verbal treatment. You, you have been recovering from that all of your life, some of you. They have the power to crush. Words also have the power to bless, to make souls stronger. So, so just think, if you were here last week for our, our outdoor service on the lawn, think about the, the words of Christ specifically. Um, that, were, that were spoken over us from the Scripture we looked at last week. If you belong to Christ, if your trust is in Jesus Christ, here are the words of Christ that are meant to dwell in you ritually. You are chosen. You are holy in the sight of God. You are beloved in the sight of God. You're forgiven in the sight of God. That's who you are. That's your status. That's your standing. These are all gospel words. And what does it say in Romans 1.16 about the gospel, it says that the gospel, the words of God, the words of Christ, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And that word power in the Greek, in the original Greek, is dynamis. And we get our word dynamite from, from that very word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to be detonated in the hearts and the lives of, of, of His people to produce a power that creates a certain kind of character, a certain way of being in the places where you live and work and play. So there's a spiritual formation aspect to this. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So when the peace of Christ rules in your hearts, it's no longer your circumstances that govern your mood, that govern your outlook on things, that govern whether or not you want to get out of bed and, and, um, and live the day ahead of you. It's no longer circumstances, but, but, but rather who God is and what God has for you to resource you for the day ahead. And, and, and so the dominant internal reality that, that, that Paul puts forth here. Um, that, that's an indicator of the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts is that it's no longer our circumstances that ultimately rule and govern our mood or our outlook, but instead it's what he calls thankfulness. He uses this word three times. And whenever you see a word repeated multiple times in the Bible, it's like several exclamation points are being put at the end of a sentence. It's emphasis. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving, thanksgiving. He says three times, and again, I'll remind us that He's writing this, he's writing about Thanksgiving from prison. He's an incarcerated man as he, as he puts these words down to, to deliver to free people who are less free than he is behind bars, and he wants them to share in that freedom. I think of Betsy Ten Boom, who's the sister of Corey Ten Boom. She writes this book, uh, Corey does, called The Hiding Place, which is um, a bit of an autobiography of, of her and Betsy's experience uh, being prisoners in, a, in an all-women's uh, and girls' Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück. And they were, they were taken into captivity because Betsy and Corey and their family uh, took part in providing shelter, providing asylum, providing a place to hide for Jewish men and women and children who were fleeing from the Nazi regime in fear for their lives. And so they were caught protecting uh, Jewish people, and so they were therefore treated like those that they were trying to protect when the Nazi 
um, regime uh, caught them. And, and in, in, in the hiding place, Corey relays this, this one episode where uh, they were all, you know, experiencing irritation because there were fleas in the cabin where they stayed. And they would wake up every morning itching everywhere from flea bites, and everybody was miserable and upset, and, and it felt like, you know, just piling on uh, to, to already horrendous circumstances. And Betsy leans over to Corey and says, Corey, we need to thank God for the fleas. And, and Corey's like, what, are you, what on earth are you talking about? She says, no, 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 no. Think about it. Why do, the, why do the officers, why do the Nazi officers never come into our cabin to do unthinkable things to us? It's because they don't want to be around the fleas. And so God sent the fleas as a lesser irritant to protect us from devastating things. It's all about perspective, according to Betsy Ten Boom. But, but that kind of perspective where, where you're looking for how God takes even evil and turns it into good, like Joseph did, after also being unjustly you know, imprisoned in, in the book of Genesis, uh, where he says, you know, what the enemy means for evil, what evil means for evil, God takes even that and will somehow, you know, perform judo on, on, on our arch enemy, the devil, and Satan, and all things demonic and all things evil, God will perform judo and take their strength and turn it against them. He will take evil even and turn it into good. But the only way that that perspective can exist is when the peace of God is ruling in our hearts and when the Word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. So there's a spiritual formation. There's also a social formation that he writes about. So the first part is that, that he redefines domestic relationships. Now, I won't get into all the details of the parent-child, men-women, servant-master relationships. I've done a whole set of sermons on these things. If you want to revisit that, go online, find the Ephesians series, and go to, you know, the Ephesians 5 and 6 sermons, and all the stuff uh, that we've got is, is already there. Um, but what I want to do is to emphasize the overarching principle that Paul is after here in all of these relationships, and that is the principle of mutual honor, reciprocal uh, efforts to outdo one another in, in showing honor. And so, so parents, make it a life-giving thing to be your kid. And kids, make it a life-giving thing to be your parents. And, and you know, those who those who are in leadership in, in the workplace, make it a life-giving thing for people who work for you. And, and those who are working for somebody, make it a life-giving thing to lead you. And then there's, you know, the men-women dynamic as well, where, where husbands and wives and men and women are, are meant to bless people, or bless each other back and forth in the relationships that they've been given. What's really radical here, though, is the way, at least in that culture, it's not so radical for us, but in that culture it was radical. Paul ascribes to women, children, and servants the same value and respect as he ascribes to men, adults, and bosses. Now, that was a significant thing because men at any given point, women were not allowed to separate from or, or divorce their husbands for any reason 
but a man was permitted somehow to divorce his wife just for burning a meal. And if he was upset with, with the food on the table, he could divorce his wife. You're probably familiar, you might be familiar with the, the part of Scripture where, where there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery and she's, she's brought out into the public and she's publicly shamed and scolded and given the scarlet letter. But did you notice they don't bring the man who is caught, out, caught in adultery out uh, for the same kind of treatment? There's a certain protection, a, a certain boys' club mentality that, that was pervasive in the culture back then. Uh, children, if parents were displeased with their children for this reason or that, if, if they didn't like the gender of, of a baby that's born in their family, if they didn't like the, the, how they looked physically, it was legal to take your child and, and, and quite literally discard them alive on a trash heap, leaving them for dead. It was legal. Uh, and, and then, of course, the slave-master thing. If, if, a, if a master was displeased with the slaves or with the servants, it was legal to execute them for any reason because they were treated as property, not as persons. And, and in comes the Apostle Paul and says, uh-uh, I'm talking equality now. I'm talking equal dignity, equal value under the one who's created all of us. Don't dare see yourself as superior and don't dare see yourself as inferior anymore. Because as Jesus said, if you want to learn about the kingdom of God, who do you have to go to first to learn it from? Little children. Little children are your object lessons, grown-ups, for what it means to live in the kingdom of God under Jesus. And so in order to become more and more mature, you have to become more and more like a child again. And who is it that, that makes sure that the very first eyewitnesses of his resurrection from the dead were women and only women, but Jesus Christ? And these women become the ambassadors to the ambassadors, the apostles to the, the apostles, the messengers to the, uh, the messengers. It's the women who go and find the men who are hiding in a safe place and, and, and tell them, the Lord is risen. And he's coming to you. He chooses women for that purpose. And then what does Jesus say when he says, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then become like a boss? No, he doesn't say become like a boss. He says become like a servant. Learn what it means to get down at somebody else's feet and wash their feet with the basin and towel. So here we have the gospel abolishing every imaginable pecking order. You know, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way in James chapter 1. Are you in humble circumstances? Then take pride in your high position. Are you rich and influential? Then take pride in your humiliation, since you will pass away like a wild flower. The, the gospel, the power, the dynamite of God, the words of Christ that, that, that dwell in us richly, annihilates superiority, and it annihilates inferiority. We are all, on the one hand, so sinful, so damaged, so contaminated, so unfinished that Jesus had to die in the way that He died in order to get us home with God. It had to happen. There was no other way except for the perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb of, lamb of God, Jesus Christ, to give His life voluntarily, willingly for the sins of the world. 
Jesus is the only person who never, who, who didn't have to die, right? The wages of sin is death, and so the rest of us, we have to die. He did not have to, but he chose to, and it had to happen because of the predicament that we are in with sin. But at the same time, we are all so significant that it, it was his joy, even, if we could imagine that, to give himself away in order to reclaim us. For the joy set before him, Hebrews tells us, Jesus endured even the cross, scorning its shame. Everyone has value. Pecking orders are abolished. So I was invited not long ago to be a guest teacher for uh, a Bible study um, for several professors, PhDs, at Vanderbilt. And at the beginning of this Bible study and and my teaching, I said, look, I've got to just come clean with you all. Um, I feel like a bit of a poser here because I didn't get into Vanderbilt. I tried, but I didn't get in. And and one of the professors said, well, sometimes the admissions department makes mistakes. And I said, oh, no, this was not a mistake. I was, I was the classic underachiever in high school. I did the very minimum. I didn't test well enough to get into Vanderbilt, and yet I still had enough arrogance to think, oh, there's something special about me that will enable them or cause them to overlook those deficiencies um, because of this or this or this or this. And the, I got the quickest rejection letter I ever got from Vanderbilt University. I said, I, candidly, I, I, I don't feel like I'm smart enough to teach you guys. And, and one of them said, Can I, may I teach you first? And I said, sure. And it's the education I always wanted but never, never got. Vanderbilt professor teaching me something. Pulled out Psalm 119, verse 99. And she said, Scott, listen to this. The Word of God makes me wiser than all my teachers. You belong here. We are here to learn from you. And then I thought of John Bunyan. We have a Sunday school class actually named after one of his books, The Pilgrim's Progress, our Pilgrim's class. John Bunyan was a grammar school dropout and and wrote one of the greatest masterpieces to ever have been written in the history of Christian literature called The Pilgrim's Progress. wise enough to teach all my teachers. Equally wonderful is this group of Vanderbilt PhDs or others like them who, who have come to treasure things like wisdom, humility, and holiness so much that they would be willing to learn it from anyone. This is how the gospel calls us you know, if you're in humble circumstances, take high, pride in your high position. If, if you're in, a, in, in high circumstances, take pride in your humble position. So what's our part? It'll be the second thought, and this one will go a lot more quickly than the first. Our part is to show up. Our part is to recognize that we don't just come to church to receive We come to church to participate and to bless. 
You know, we have this thing called the discipleship pathway that we call it at Christ Pres. the first two tenets of which are be fully present with the local church every single Sunday, unless you're sick or disabled in some other way, or, or, or I'm sorry, and be fully present with Jesus Christ every single day by developing a robust relationship with Scripture, prayer, etc. But why the church part? Why the church part? When everything's so accessible now on devices and we can curate our own experiences and, and we can do it in a way that, that, that's increasingly more and more and more convenient and so on. Here's why. The church is not a club. The church is not a network primarily. The church is a body. The church is a body. And every body is interdependent. Interdependence is actually built into the fabric of the universe. God himself is interdependent. Mysteriously, he is one, and yet he is three persons, interdependent on one another. Jesus' greatest grief on the cross was not his physical pain. It wasn't even the rejection that came from human beings, as painful as that was. His greatest pain on the cross was the severing of that relationship and that fellowship between him and the Father in order to finish his work. Even God is interdependent. And, and, and that plays out in all of creation. There's this interplay uh, that Genesis shows us between water, earth, and sky. If you take one away, both, get de- both of the others get destroyed. Water, earth, and sky all need one another. You know, oxygen-breathing organisms like the trees need carbon dioxide-breathing organism like, organisms like mammals and humans uh, because one inhales carbon dioxide, the other inhales oxygen, and, and either exiles the o- exhales the opposite. There's an interdependence there. I was reading about redwood trees last week, right? So redwood trees, if you're, if you're a tree person, you know that, that these are some of the most durable trees that, that there are. They can, they can last for thousands, even ten, tens of thousands of years. But the, the curious thing about it is that redwood trees have some of the most shallow roots of any trees, and it, it's, 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 it's a mystery how they, they withstand things like tornadoes and natural disasters and hurricanes and everything else until you understand that every redwood tree root system is seeking another root system to intertwine with and to weave itself with. It's as if you've got this whole colony of redwoods that, that, that have chosen somehow miraculously to become interdependent on one another's beneath the surface strength so they can become the most durable entities, some of the most durable entities on earth above the surface. And then, of course, there are human beings. The first negative word that God ever spoke over His creation, He spoke into paradise before sin, before the fall happened. It is not good for human beings to be by themselves. It is not good to isolate. It is not good to be alone. You are called into one body. Can you imagine if your feet could talk? And they said, you know what? I'm going to go on a vacation. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to be out for two months, or we're going to be out, your feet. They tell you they're going to be out for two months. Hope it goes well. Or, or your eyes tell you, you know what? Um, I think I'm just going to be around every other month, once or twice. Um, you get where I'm going with this. 
the severed parts, if they decide to, to peace out on the body, the severed parts will die by virtue of not being connected to, to the blood flow and, and everything else that, that they depend on for their survival. And at the same time, the, the, the remaining body will suffer without all the parts. You know, positively, the more together we are, the more we flourish. So all these pictures the other, the other week of University of Tennessee pulling off that football victory against Alabama, I'm not taking sides. I'm just acknowledging a fact that Tennessee beat Alabama, which hasn't happened in a long time. And, and okay, those of you who went to the game, which I think was pretty much half of you, your social media scrolls, that there's pictures, 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 pictures. None of them are of the game. All of these pictures are of the crowd. Why on earth? Why on earth would you be more inspired by the crowd, by the unathletic, hot dog eating, beer drinking, screaming people, than you are by the players who gave you the win? It's very church like. That's why. You're made for that kind of thing. To be part of something bigger than yourself that others are also part of. It's in your wiring. You know, you go to the Ryman or the Bridgestone, as we do, as often as we can, to hear a band. And one of the most annoying things that can happen at a concert is when you drop a couple hundred bucks on tickets and the person who sits next to you is so enthusiastic that they sing the music louder than the band. And so you spend the whole night just ruminating on the fact that you dropped 200 bucks to hear this off-key person who who only knows half the words, bellowing it out, and you can't even hear the band you came to hear, right? So there's a purpose, and that is that we be entertained by them. A very clear purpose, and it's amazing, otherworldly sometimes. But when you come to church, the purpose is reversed. The best bands in the church want to be outsung and oversung by the congregation. You know, we may or may not have had the person who's voted the best guitarist in Nashville on stage leading us this, this morning by his peers, which makes him likely close to the best guitarist in the world. He plays stadiums several nights a week for the fans as the star. But he's got the kind of heart, a lot like my friends at Vanderbilt, when he comes in here, he realizes that his whole purpose is to deflect away from himself and to facilitate so that you can outsing him. And that, that, that works for the choir. It works for all the other, other band members. And it also works in cities where the music isn't that good, you guys. Because the, the, the purpose of, of music and worship in a church is not to entertain the saints. It's not to sing to you. It's not to sing for you. It's to help you sing. And sometimes when I get an opportunity to worship in another city, at another church, and I realize that Nashville is not normal, I'm reminded once again that no matter how epic or how mediocre the quality of the sermons, 
of the liturgy, of the music, of the art forms, of whether or not, you know, the, the, the instruments are in tune. Like, it, it's almost as if the less together things are up here, the greater the opportunity exists for me to learn what it means to love instead of be entertained. See, it's, it's this whole reversal of things. If you can get together with other bodies and make a lot of noise together with the Word of Christ in your heart, you have been the church. One of the greatest church songs I've ever heard was a six-year-old girl messing up Jesus Loves Me on the piano, and it was the most glorious thing I've ever heard. Better than anything. Because it's not about that. It's about the joy. It's about the place where it comes from. Yeah, you want quality. Yeah, you want excellence to the glory of God. But we have to understand that everything here is to facilitate so the people of God can sing to each other. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? By teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So in a sense, that makes you the primary preachers here. You are here to preach the second sermon to each other as you shout the liturgy and as you shout the songs, on key or off key. There's an interplay, an interdependence. So I'll close with what Anglican pastor and theologian David Taylor said recently. He says, it's the Spirit's pleasure, I contend, to work not just in our heads and hearts, but in and through our physical bodies to form us wholly into Christ's body. The Spirit produces the one body life of the church, not despite or beyond our bodies, but rather in and through our physical selves. The Spirit takes our corporate song and binds us corporally in ways that are deeply transformative. The experience is fully embodied corporate song, is a kind of positive peer pressure. Perhaps we might view it as an occasion for physically infectious worship in the same way that a sporting event can be socially, a socially infectious experience. You know, there are a lot of reasons why we observe the Lord's Supper uh, every week, uh, and one of which is to remind us, by virtue of the physical presence of his, uh, his body and blood, as he calls it, the bread and the cup, that Jesus has a perfect church attendance record. If you ever want to get close to Christ, a guarantee that you'll get to cl- get close to Christ is, is by getting close to the local church <coughs> and, and making yourself present among the people of God as often as you can, fully present with a local church every single Sunday of your life, even when you're traveling, even when you're traveling, finding some place to be with the people of God. You know, Jesus doesn't say about this bread and this cup, this resembles my body and blood. He says, this is my body and this is my blood. And there's so much mystery to that and we have to receive it by faith like we do all of the words of Christ. But it's also a reminder for us that He inhabits the praises of His people just as He inhabits the body and the blood of Christ. And you know, one, one more thing I'll say. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to observe the Lord's Supper a little bit differently, and that is that we're going to have music going on that you can sing to as people are coming to and, and leaving the tables for the next 10 minutes or so before we uh, close the service. But as you do, 
uh, I want to encourage you to maybe sing a little bit more robustly than you're accustomed to recognizing what Bonhoeffer said. He says that the word of Christ on my brother's or my sister's mouth is stronger than the word of Christ in my heart. And what do you base that on? You base it on passages like this one from Colossians that says it's not only an imperative, it's not only a responsibility, it's an honor to get to preach the gospel to one another as we sing. It's a simultaneous thing going on where we're, where we're both verbalizing and we're receiving, and somehow that enhances and enriches the whole experience of being in the presence of God, which is, which is our hope today.